Father, we thank you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have opened up the eyes of the saints and believers in this room to see the manifest kingdom of God. Lord, we are blind to your work in this world and throughout history until our eyes are opened and you do that miracle of spiritual sight to make us aware of what you have done and what you have planned to do and what you have accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, you are our portion. From beginning to end, from Alpha and Omega, from creation to redemption to new creation, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you have drawn our attention to this fact through the power of your holy word. When our eyes are open to see you manifest on each page. Lord, I pray that you would continue this as we open your scriptures today. That we would see you majestically portrayed and revealed and glorified and magnified in your scriptures today. We pray that the same Holy Spirit who sparked that work of regeneration in each believing heart this morning would now open our eyes to appreciate and to comprehend more of what that moment meant when we were resurrected from darkness of death spiritually unto newness of life, looking forward to joining our resurrected Savior in glory one day. Lord, we also pray as your word is proclaimed that you would draw the lost unto salvation. That through the foolishness of preaching, Lord, man's ears would be unstopped and the power of the gospel would go forth even in a day as dark as ours to shine light into the corners of this pagan world, drawing the lost unto salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you work miracles in the hearts and souls of individuals even this day by the same power that raised Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, from the dead. Thank you for these moments. May we treasure them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we will be returning to our Genesis series. So I encourage you to turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 3, where we will consider this morning the close of this chapter, verses 20 through 24. Just four verses, but heavy laden with significant events that we will see from the rest of scripture. The title of this morning's message is Closing Eden's Door. Closing Eden's door. It's a metaphor or a picture, an illustration of what has happened at this stage in redemptive history. The door of Eden, that is, access of mankind into that realm of paradise, of God's presence, is now closed. And these are the events in the end of Genesis chapter 3 that we behold. The closing of the door to Eden. So there's a sort of ominous tone. There's a sort of sadness, a tragic unimaginably uh, tragic event, events that we are considering, but there is also redemptive hope, and so to the scriptures we turn. The aim of this morning's message is to inform the hearer as to the significance of events in Eden via, or by means of, the greater testimony of scripture. So this morning, my goal in preaching is to inform us as to the significance of these events in the Garden of Eden by looking at the greater testimony of scripture. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word if you are able this morning? And let us behold these truths together. Again, follow me as I proclaim Genesis 3, 20 through 24. Here is the holy word of God. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Though the final chapter of paradise, of Eden, as of this state of innocence, we've covered the fourfold state of man in the context of our Genesis series, have we not? So the first state of man is his innocence. That is, Adam, the position that only two humans, aside from Jesus Christ, ever found themselves in, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, The second state of man is his state of fallenness. This is the state that Adam and Eve have entered upon disobedience, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
The third state is the hope of redemption that is found in regeneration, where mankind's his heart is changed sovereignly by the grace of the Holy Spirit, drawing his attention to the gospel, whereby we are saved, born again. And then the final state of man is glory one day, a sort of return and then some to the state of Eden or to the paradise that was lost in these verses that we've read today. With this in mind, we see this final chapter of paradise closing in the state of innocence of man, having now shifted to the state of fallenness with notes of devastating sadness and the seal of judgment forever barring unassisted re-entry. This reference to cherubim and flaming sword, think of it as a seal upon a letter. A seal um, prevented those who were unauthorized from opening up a document from an authority figure like a king. There's something like a seal upon this stage of man's existence. And the seal is pictured here in cherubim, which are agents that guard entry to to this paradise that was lost with flaming sword implements of judgment. And this picture then is telling us that man is barred forever from entering into the Garden of Eden unassisted. Without a, a help from outside of himself, there is no return. Yet, there are hopeful signs in our text today as well. The meaning of these symbol-laden historical events is profound, even if it is foreign to the untransformed mind. These words that I've read this morning appear ridiculous and absurd to the godless skeptic. That's because they don't realize for themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit and the greater testimony of Scripture the significance of what is going on here. As we look to these means, the greater revelation of Scripture, however, provides keys to a richer understanding of these final moments in the Garden of Eden. Not only are they profound... They have everything to do with the gospel. These symbolic events that happened in real time in history have everything to do with the gospel. And we see this imagery, therefore, picked up in gospel proclamation throughout the course of Scripture. God's redemptive plan has yet to be revealed in Jesus Christ, yet it is revealed in seed form in Genesis from the very beginning. One helpful point of perspective on the closing of Eden's door comes from the great commentator Matthew Henry, uh, probably my favorite commentator on the Scriptures. Uh, Consider this sentence. He says of our text today, God revealed this to Adam, not to drive him to despair, but to quicken him to look for life and happiness in the promised seed by whom a new and living way into the holiest is laid open for us. What a great point. God revealed this to Adam, that is, God sealed upon the pain of judgment re-entry into Eden so that man would not be tempted or so as a gracious revelation to man to not look to any other way to life and happiness outside of the one promised way. And what was that one promised way? We see it in minute and seed form as well in Genesis 3.15 as we have often read. The Lord prophesies in judgment over the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman holds out hope for man, but there is no other way. And this is the point that uh, Matthew Henry stresses in the context of these events that we've read today. So using Henry's, Matthew Henry's insightful categories summarizing the close of Genesis 3, It becomes apparent that all of history since Eden has been marked by the quest for life and happiness. Let me pause. By way of illustration, think of the founding documents of our nation. We have it encoded into the framework of our very existence as a body politic, the right to pursue happiness as we see fit. Isn't that interesting? In the words of Matthew Henry, mankind will look for life and happiness But he should only look in one place, the promised seed, that is, in Jesus Christ, the only true way of salvation. However, as we look across the landscape of history, it is marked by two uh, different ways of life, two different worldviews, two different pursuits, whereby the affections of man are focused on their goals for life. Since Eden, life has been marked by a quest for life and happiness of those looking to the Messiah 
and secondly, by those who look for life and happiness elsewhere in this fallen realm. Looking for life and happiness elsewhere, outside of the seed of the woman, outside of Jesus Christ in this fallen realm, is a pathway that ultimately comes up short and always without fail falls upon the flaming sword that guards the premises of Eden from unauthorized invasion. There is a cherubim and flaming sword placed upon entrance to life and happiness, and there is only one way through the narrow gate. It is not found in this fallen realm. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. There is one way back to reconciliation with a holy God. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, His Son. And this way, the Scriptures go on to teach, though narrow, difficult, and unpopular, leads assuredly to glorious life eternal. Eden's door is closing in Genesis 3, 20-24, but it is significant indeed. Consider three points this morning under this heading. Eden's door closes with events signifying the following. Two events signifying redemptive hope. Second major point. Two events signifying covenant sanctions which is consequences for disobedience, punishments doled out for breaking the promise of one party in this covenant arrangement, in this transaction or contract. Thirdly, barriers of re-entry. Eden's door closes with events signaling redemptive hope, covenant sanctions, and barriers of re-entry. Let's cover these this morning as we look close, more closely at our text. First of all, Eden's door closes, yet there are events that signify That is, that they point towards, they hold out redemptive hope. Consider again Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And these two events, may I suggest, we find redemptive hope in the fact that Adam names Eve something significant. And the fact that God covers His children at this point, His, uh, Adam and Eve, with garments by His own hand. These are events, as the door of Eden closes, that signify redemptive hope. First of all, Adam naming Eve. Isn't this interesting? The man called his wife Eve. Now, you remember that Adam had a naming charge, he had duty given by the Lord back in Genesis 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, we read in 19, and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And then the narrative follows with Adam falling into deep sleep from which God takes that rib and Eve is created. It's interesting that Adam names all these creatures that we read about in Genesis 2, but he has not yet named the most important creature to him of all, by far, his wife, until after the fall, until this moment in our text. At this time in Genesis 3.20, the man gets around to naming this among the most glorious of God's creatures, man and woman, and he calls his wife's name Eve. It says, because she was the mother of all living. I'm told if you look more closely at the original language, a poetic translation for the name Eve can literally mean, or, can, uh, or sounds like it has a, a kind of an association with the term life giver. In other words, Eve was the mother of all living, the life giver, That is to say, perhaps, in this act, that there is redemptive hope, that Adam is looking at his wife, calling her the life giver, remembering the promise that through their offspring, specifically her seed, there would be one who would create a way for them to be reconciled with God again, who would do the duty that he failed, that Adam failed to do, and crush the serpent's head who would actually be faithful to the covenant and keep it right down to the exact, precise demands that a holy God had laid out for Adam. Perhaps a second Adam would come. 
That second Adam would come through the seed of the woman. And inasmuch as that was true, she was, in that sense, the life giver. The seed of the woman held out life for all mankind. I submit to you this is more than just a biological observation. Adam had long since named all the other creatures. Eve does not receive her name from Adam till after the fall. And in this context of post-fall realities that Adam now realizes a certain, it seems, Adam now realizes a certain significance in calling the woman life giver. He seems to highlight at this moment that God has purposes and plans uh, beyond the mere procreation of children to actually supply through their lineage a deliverer. And let me just add parenthetically that consequently and conversely, it is no surprise that Satan continues to wage war even to this day against the womb of the woman. And we see this most prominently in abortion in our land, which under the sanction of law declares war on the womb of the woman and the seed of the woman on the inside. And this is no mistake and no accident from the devil's perspective. Why? Because there yet remains today, let me submit to you, a resentment among the evil forces, among Satan himself and all who are aligned with him against the very vehicle, the very vehicle for the incarnation and against indeed the image of God that yet remains in mankind. This war against the seed of the woman is not a modern phenomenon, it's an age-old phenomenon. At the birth of Christ, a war was declared by a king who vied for authority, who wanted to maintain his place of prominence and autonomy apart from God. And Herod sought out all the infants approximately Christ's age in the city of Bethlehem and appointed them for destruction. In the same way, Pharaoh waged war against the seed of the woman, seeking to destroy one who might unseat his authority and his throne. Praise be to God. No matter how intense, no matter how gruesome, no matter how devastating, no matter how genocidal the war that the enemy has waged against the seed of the woman all through the centuries, ultimately his plans were not effective. And I have proof for you, and this comes by way of Luke chapter 1. Turn there with me if you would. We're approaching the Christmas season where traditionally many celebrate the incarnation and the events that surround it. Let me read to you one event that was a fulfillment of Adam's name for Eve in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. An angel visits a virgin named Mary, and the angel answers her in verse 35, quote, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. No child up to this point has been born with such a designation of the seed of Eve until now. But here it is, thousands of years later, from the womb of Mary will be born by the power of the overshadowing Holy Spirit, a child who will be called Holy, the Son of God. Here he is, the soon-to-be head crusher, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and behold, Continues, verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, is, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in this record, we see fulfillment going all the way back to these signs, these events that signify redemptive hope in the garden when Adam named his wife, the mother of all living, life giver, Eve. Second event signaling redemptive hope, garments of skins. In Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is significant. We recall a failed attempt to do something similar in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were open, referring to Adam and Eve, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when we, when we were considering this, this passage, we talked about how this was the first pagan religion, if you will, 
This is the first attempt by man in his works and ingenuity to cover the shame of his sin. Such is pagan religion. There is no way for man in his own works and ingenuity to cover his own shameful vulnerability, indignity, nakedness, and, and the horrific state of his uh, being following his sin and transgression of God's law. There is no way for him to do it of his own accord, but there is a way for him to be covered. It is a sovereign covering supplied by God in this instance, in this event that signifies redemptive hope of covering for sin by the one who has the power to do so. And God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Would you turn with me to another interesting passage you may have not considered um, lately in your own Bible study, but I was drawn to it in some of my uh, reading. This is Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. I was listening to a podcast some time ago called The Theology of Clothing. The Theology of Clothing. How the Bible uses the category of garments, clothing, raiment, vestiture, if you will, to signify certain things. And there is a recalling of the conditions of Eden and the state of innocence that is associated with a prophecy over the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 that is quite curious indeed and relates to our text today. As this prophecy is declared over this king, his state and condition is compared to the privilege that Adam enjoyed in the garden before the fall. Listen to these words, verse 11. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day when you were created, they were prepared. Listen to this, verse 14. They were, an, or you were, excuse me, an anointed guardian cherub. An anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, now this is with reference to the king of Tyre, you are filled with violence in your midst and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. So, and I, just, excuse me, I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Here we have reference to clothing and office that go back to the calling of Adam in his state of innocence in the garden. It's not so much, according to Ezekiel 28, that Adam was unclothed prior to the fall. It's that he was, he was clothed of a sort and he lost that covering. The uh, clothing that is referred to here is a sort of priestly vestiture, garments, stones, and precious metals that signify his role, his duty to guard the garden and to maintain the holy conditions of that sanctuary to be a suitable place for the presence of God. But he gave in to temptation, and like the king of Tyre, his heart was proud because he was thinking of himself, and so he corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his splendor. The promise of vanity of the serpent that you can be like God corrupted the wisdom of man and he fell into unrighteousness. And suddenly his eyes were open to the stripping away of his dignity, his calling, his purpose, his, his uh, reason for existence within this holy realm and order. And he found himself naked and no longer the guardian cherub, but replaced by another. We'll cover that more later. Yet... In spite of this, this place where man has, was totally stripped of his dignity because of his sin, even as Eden's door is closing in the wake of his crimes against the Holy One, there are events that signify redemptive hope, and among them, garments that God supplies as a covering for Adam and his wife. These skins required the slaughter, presumably, of an animal which many uh, scholars note, it probably uh, prefigures the sacrificial system and foretells in this seed form that a death is required and blood is required 
for the covering, for the remission of sins. The theme of garments picturing God's holiness, reshaping us, covering us, providing atonement continues through Scripture. Paul picks up on it in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. You can study on your own time. But he says that we have this earthly tent, it groans, it is not the glorious hope that we have in the future, but there is coming a day when we will be clothed with the greater glory still. And to that day, uh, uh, Paul encouraged the church to find their hope of further covering that the glory of the Lord and His robes of righteousness, as again is pictured in Revelation, would be the garments of His supply that would render us once again presentable in His holy realm. Eden's door is closing, but there is redemptive hope. It would come ultimately in the form of the once-for-all sacrifice whose blood would supply a covering for our sins. The once-for-all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose sacrifice, whose blood would supply white robes of righteousness as covering for our sin. Major point number two, Eden's door closes with events signifying not only redemptive hope, but secondly, covenant sanctions, consequences for sin. Under this heading, two events, guarding of the tree of life, and secondly, banishment from Eden. Again, in Genesis 3:22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's as if the sentence breaks off there. And then the action that God takes, the covenant sanction the punitive action, the punishment, the consequence for sin that he doles out is as follows. 23, therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden, banished from the premises, to work the ground from which he was taken. So Adam is sent away. There is a, however, there is a guarding of the tree of, of life and this curious uh, note in the text. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. This raises a significant question. In what sense did Adam and Eve become like God after they partook of the forbidden fruit? That is, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In what sense is the Lord revealing to us that they became like Him in this action? I submit to you the following as a possible answer from the greater context of Scripture. Up till the fall, the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of all things, uh, or the knowledge of good and evil based upon, or uh, that Adam and Eve walked in was based upon the Word of God. That is to say that they knew right from wrong based upon the commandment, upon the Scripture, if you will, though it wasn't written down. It was certainly communicated to them by special revelation. The Word of God was the basis of their knowledge. But there came a temptation to be like God, to have a knowledge based not just on depending on the word of someone else, but a knowledge more comprehensive, a knowledge that would elevate you to God that came in and of yourself. And so this was a tempting proposition to Adam and Eve. And so they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now they experienced evil in this action. And now this knowledge of good and evil was rooted in their experience that they when they presumptuously disregarded their uh, contingency in terms of creation and covenant with God. In other words, the Lord had said, the Lord uh, laid out the terms, you are my creation and you exist in good standing with me according to the terms of covenant. You're free to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go, take, subdue, be fruitful, multiply, but you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So upon these two things, the fact that Adam was created and he was living in terms of God's word, that was the basis of his existence, his worldview, his consciousness. But he presumptuously disregarded all of this when he bought into the enemy's deal and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now he proceeded to ground now, this knowledge in and of himself. You see, he did not want to be dependent on God for anything, 
but instead moved uh, in this radical act of self-exaltation, said, I'm as good as God. I do not need to depend on His Word as the sum of truth and knowledge. So in this sense, man had made himself to be as God. Now, this is a futile endeavor, ridiculous, and God would now demonstrate His superiority in judgment for this sin. Yet, nevertheless, in this way, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And so, something must be done. And that something that must be done is that the tree of life must be guarded from Adam. Turn to Revelation 22. This imagery of the tree of life is picked up later in Scripture. And one of these uh, text references is in Revelation 22, 11 through 15. Here we read the following. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There is a day of reckoning coming where there will be those who have access to the tree of life. And at this moment, there, there is no more opportunity for those who are called dogs, that is outcasts, unclean, sorcerers, sexually immoral, and so forth. In other words, when the tree of life is partaken of, or when that moment when the tree of life is a reality in mankind's existence, uh, then the door is closed once again, that is the moment of truth. There is something final that happens at that time. The tree of life appears in the greater context of Scripture to entail a bridge from the temporal to the eternal state. And prematurely crossing that bridge, void of atonement, would seal one's fate in their fallen condition. That is to say, perhaps putting two and two together, the best way to understand Genesis 3 is if Adam and Eve were to prematurely partake of the tree of life without having themselves washed, in their gar- as we see it in Revelation 22, specifically through faith in Jesus Christ, they would seal their fate. They would cross the bridge from the temporal to the eternal state prematurely, and thus there would be they would short-circuit God's plan of redemption in so doing. If this is the case, and the the tree of life therefore stands as something of a a confirming uh, instrument, that once the tree of life is reintroduced in the experience of man, at that point, um, his state and his eternal state is assured or established or confirmed. So the tree of life is guarded because God has a plan for redemption. And this plan includes Adam and Eve coming to faith if they were to ever have hope of re-entering God's presence in the Messiah to come. And then upon God's choosing in the future, access, re-entry into the garden is available once again, but only through Jesus Christ. Covenant sanctions included guarding the tree. There is a way... Um, and, it can't, and there is no shortcuts. There is a way to glory, to heaven, but as Matthew Henry said, there, uh, we look for life and happiness, but it's found only in one place, the promised seed. If one looks for life and happiness, if they part, try to partake of the tree of life any other way, they will seal their fate. They will again, as we've said, fall on the flaming sword that is standing there with the cherubim, guarding the way from any unauthorized intruders or invaders. Man has been infatuated with the concept of immortality since the fall. Man has sought for life and happiness in 
vain quest for the fountain of youth, which used to be a real thing. Now is a metaphor that describes affections that man still try to retain some kind of immortality. They try to acquire for themselves some kind of meaning, even through cheap material uh, surgical procedures, try to look younger even as they age. There's these different ways that we see, even in our culture today, transhumanism sometimes is this convoluted idea that you can combine technology and the consciousness of man to extend the life of the individual by transferring his thinking onto a robot or some such thing. And we can extend our life almost indefinitely that way. And you can turn into, you can tune into some, you know, prognosticators and futurists who will tell you today that we're just on the cusp of extending our life hundreds of years with the hope that we might live indefinitely into the future. Man is seeking for eternal life. He is seeking to enter by another way and to partake of the fruit from the tree of life. But the way is barred. He cannot enter. And every alternate route is sealed by the flaming sword held by the cherubim, and his efforts will prove futile, and he will die in his transgressions and sins unless and until he repents and places his faith in Jesus Christ, the only way to immortality. The covenant sanctions bar any other way, but there is hope, as we've already said, in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's the banishment from Eden. Therefore, Genesis 3:24, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Turn to Revelation 21. Holiness of God in his realm, his place of his, pres- of his abiding presence demanded that anything unclean be banished from that environment. And as Adam and Eve in their sin were unclean, they must now exit the garden. And so they are banished. The holiness of our righteous God demanded that the unclean be removed from the premises. Now this picture of separation and consecration unto holiness is picked up through the course of the law. This is why symbolically in the old covenant, those who had leprous conditions and so forth had to be banished from the people, uh, from the, the people of God as a body politic, as it were, as a group of individuals. Why? Because it was a picture of the holiness of the realm that in order to be maintained had to separate from the unclean. And in a very real sense, here this is happening in the life of Adam and Eve. They are separated from God's holy realm. Is there any hope of reunion? Revelation 21 says the following, verse 3, And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How will this be accomplished, saints? How can there be reunion? How can there be in our future once again a dwelling place of God with man? I say it's through Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean, that name for Christ? God with us. When Emmanuel comes, when Emmanuel's work is complete, when Emmanuel makes a way, then the dwelling place of God will be the same as the dwelling place of man. And the picture of God's temple presence held out hope in symbolic form all through the Old Testament, looking forward to the one great high priest who did not need to make a sacrifice for his own sins. He was the sacrifice because he was sinless. He was Emmanuel. And that would be the time when reunion, when reconciliation was possible. And this banishment from Eden, this distance from the glory and presence of God could be transcended in the one, Jesus Christ. Now, the events of Eden's door closing goes on to say more about this, and it brings us to our third point. Eden's door closes with events signifying redemptive hope, covenant sanctions, thirdly, barriers of re-entry. Two things, the placement of the cherubim and the flaming sword. Verse 24, he drove out man, at, and at the east of the garden, even that direction is significant. That's the same direction that the glory exited the temple. It's the same direction that Jesus proclaimed judgment upon Jerusalem, the Sermon 
uh, following on the Mount Olivet Discourse. He drove out man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Eden's door closes, but these events signify barrier of re-entry. What is the significance of cherubim? What are they? Well, they're mysterious in, in some of their uh, way, or they're mysterious to us because the cherubim are creatures of another realm, you could say. But as we go through the rest of Scripture, we see something of their character. In Ezekiel chapter 10, for instance, we find the cherubim doing something very specific with respect to the temple. I mentioned the glory of the Lord being removed from the temple at this time of the prophet is declaring as much, Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel sees in this vision, Then I looked, 10.1, and on the expanse was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance of a throne. So it's the reference to these cherubim again. And then there's the presence of God uh, pictured in this symbolic imagery as throne. He said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals and from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. He went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in. The cloud filled the inner court. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court. Like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. And when He commanded the man clothed in linen, uh, take fire from between the whirling wheels and from between the cherubim. He went in and stood beside the wheel. The record continues... To the point in verse 18 we read, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went with the wheels before them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, there's east again, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chaber Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Uh, young people, I have a question for you. What was the job, the special job of Adam in the garden? He was called to do two things. Does anyone remember? What did you say there, Sonny? Working in the garden? That's exactly right. One of Adam's jobs was to work the garden. That is to tend. What did you say, Cal? Tend it? Say again? Protect it. That's correct. Work and protect. The biblical terms are tend and keep the garden, but that's what they mean. They mean what Sonny said, uh, God, or, uh, God gave Adam the job to work the garden, to take good care of it, and what Calvin said, to protect it, to guard it from enemies. That was his job. In Ezekiel 28, um, the king of Tyre was compared to the original call of Adam when it says, I place you as a guardian cherub. In other words, Adam was the cherub that is the agent who is called to guard the presence from God's enemies. That was part of Adam's duty. Uh, young people, did Adam do a good job? No. no, he failed in his duty. He did not guard the garden. Who came into the garden and messed everything up? The serpent or Satan. The serpent or Satan, that's correct. What should Adam have done to the serpent, young people? Stomp on his head. Stomp on his head. But he did not. He would, did not do his duty as a guardian cherub. So what would happen? He would be replaced by someone else. Or, uh, and so we see in Genesis 3.24, after man is driven out, God places the cherub and a flaming sword that turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The reference in Ezekiel chapter 10 that we just read, the cherubs are there as well. They're guarding the presence of the Lord and they form a chariot vehicle, if you will, and they actually remove the presence of the Lord from the habitation of the people. Why? Because once again, there is a banishment of the people from the presence of the Lord on account of their sin. When a cherub is placed at, God, at the sanctuary of God, it is a barrier of entry. It is a guardian, a guardian against the sinful, the transgressor, the enemy, the unholy, 
the one who has declared war against God, who has listened to the devil, who has bought into his deal and has corrupted his way. And so this placing of the cherubim refers to a barrier of re-entry. There is no crossing uh, this line of demarcation anymore unless there is something that can render us holy once again. Now, cherubim are referred to in other places in Scripture, just two to jog your memory. Of course, on the tabernacle, or in the tabernacle, on the Ark of the Covenant, the cherub were there as well. And they were guarding, as it were, watching over the mercy seat. And herein, we have redemptive hope. Upon that mercy seat, what, what would happen on that mercy seat? Young people, anyone know what the priests would do? What would happen on that mercy seat? That's right, Israel, they would sprinkle blood upon that mercy seat. And as long as that sacrifice, according to God's terms, was made, then the presence of God could dwell with His people, and there was favor, and it was a place of reunion, of reconciliation. And this is the picture of Zion, the tabernacle, the temple, the presence of God dwelling with man, Emmanuel, a reality. But in Ezekiel 10, once again, there is a banishment of man from this reality the cherubim guard over the, uh, the mercy seat. In uh, John, on your own time, you could study chapter 20, verse 12. I think John Owen brought out this reference. I just filed it away in my memory because one of my favorite pictures of cherubim. I think it's Mary. She enters the tomb, and there where Jesus lay, she sees two angels, one at the foot and one at the head of where Jesus lay. Two cherubs, as it were, and pictured in between the mercy seat upon which lay the literal sacrifice for our sins. And in the scope of Scripture, therefore, we see that there is hope in the future. And the cherubim represent for the unredeemed a barrier of re-entry into Eden. They guard the presence of the Lord, but there is a way. Our final point this morning is flaming sword under barriers of re-entry. This signals the way back to Eden is through the sword. This is a recurring figure throughout the scriptures, sword as an implement of judgment. God places the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turn every way to guard the tree of life. Again, this barrier of entry, this flaming sword. Ezekiel 21, again in Ezekiel, picks up this imagery. Don't turn there this morning, but on your own time, you can study where a sword is brought against the land. It's the sword of the Lord. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, Jesus Christ is pictured with that two-edged sword, recalling the opening of the book coming out of His mouth. Again, this implement of judgment. If you are not in good standing with Christ, then you fall victim upon His sword, just as the cherubs were called to guard the holy presence of God from any intruder with their flaming implement of judgment. Last passage to turn to this morning is Isaiah 53. One of those famous texts, and the imagery of sword is here as well, and it makes the point that the pathway of re-entry into Eden is through the sword. It requires piercing. In Isaiah 53, 5 through 8, we read, but he, speaking of Christ to come, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the head crusher, the one who would come, Emmanuel in due course. And satisfy the conditions of the covenant as the second Adam. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people." Jesus Christ, in this prophetic picture, was cut off from the land of the living. More than this, He was wounded for our transgressions. His piercing was the payment for our re-entry into Eden. Someone had to die. 
There had to be judgment for our sin. Jesus took the spear pierce, piercing in his side so that there might be a way for re-entry, for the barrier to be transcended. Because Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, because he was cut off from the land of the living, thus the barrier of re-entry into the presence and favor of God is transcended in the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Our way back to Eden, as it were, and more, is assured through the wounded side of our Savior, securing the just penalty for our transgressions. Praise His holy name. Let us close this morning in prayer. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that even in the proclamation of Your justice and righteousness, the ominous wages of sin, Lord Jesus, are proclaimed in death and judgment. In light of this, nevertheless, we see hope and redemption in our Savior and Lord, who is wounded, pierced, bruised, abandoned, and mocked for our transgressions. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was made to be the sacrifice. He was the Passover lamb to come, who in the fullness of time secured our re-entry into your presence once again. We thank you, Lord, for those of us that know you in this place, that we no longer fear the guardian cherub with flaming sword because Jesus Christ took the just penalty for us. For those who find themselves in the hearing of this message, themselves cut off from the land of the living, in their sin and in their unbelief, they find themselves necessarily separated from the holy presence of God. I pray that they would repent of their sin, turn to Jesus Christ, place their faith and hope in His work on Calvary and look forward to their resurrection with Him one day to rejoin us in that glorious reunion at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until that day, would you keep us, O Lord, and would you equip us to champion your truth that Christ is the way and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.